This is an ABC podcast. The thing that we like about this trial and we hope that it succeeds is that it's a lot more convenient for people to do this recycling in their home and only have to take the material to their curbside and not all the way to a supermarket. The collapse of recycling giant Red Cycle has left many wondering what to do with their old plastic bags. In regional Victoria, one council is forging ahead with their plan to deal with the growing problem. That story soon. And conservationists in New South Wales hope playing recordings of a critically endangered songbird at rest stops will help ensure its survival. The populations are so small, they're losing some of their, um, their core vocalisations. So they're actually losing the, the capacity to interact properly. Helping the region honey eater remember its mating call. I'm Alex Simon and this is Australia Wide. We start in WA and the issue of overcrowding in public housing and the flow-on effects it can have for youth who grow up in these homes. Recent months have seen WA thrust into the spotlight for its management of juvenile detention and youth crime. Now questions are being asked about why housing and homelessness isn't a bigger part of the conversation on youth crime and Aboriginal matriarchs say their efforts to keep their grandchildren safe and on the right side of the law are being hindered by public housing policies that lead to overcrowding and homelessness. Perth-based reporter Alicia Bridges has the story. How many bedrooms? Three. Three bedrooms. 20 people in three bedrooms. And the two lounges, um, just got to make a bed there, chuck a mattress there. Noongar woman Barbara Abraham is living in public housing with her son John. She went there with her husband and five grandchildren after they were evicted from their tenancy with a non-profit. I'll tell you one thing, I'm really stressed stressed right out because I don't I don't mind myself because I used to live in a tent in the bush but I mean for my grandchildren to be growing up in this way it's no good for anyone they missed missed out on a lot of schooling. Ms Abraham says the boys are becoming increasingly depressed and withdrawn because they have no privacy or stability in the home. The Department of Communities is also trying to evict Barbara's son, John. Now he got this place here, but I mean, he's the sort of person who don't like to see his family laying out in the street. Ms Abraham and her husband were recently rejected to join the priority wait list for public housing. The Department for Communities says they were evicted because of damage and disruption in their previous tenancies. Ms Abraham disputes her role in those incidents, but says the outcome for the children is the same. Well, I tell you one thing, if they're not dead, they're going to be in jail. I worry that it's a fast track to prison for these kids. Kate Davis is a lawyer for the Abraham family. They're getting some shelter at John's place, but they're basically homeless now. Uh, and so overcrowding is a really, of this kind is a really significant problem um, within particularly the Aboriginal community. She says the family is an example of the domino effect that happens when one family is evicted leading to more overcrowding and then more evictions. A 2015 paper from the Australian Institute of Criminology says the influence of homelessness on criminal activity has long been acknowledged. Another Perth woman, Sheree Nanup, is also fearful for the children in her care. And I'm just looking at my grandkids. Have I got another one that's going to be back in jail or have I got another one that's going to hit drugs? The 47-year-old walks with crutches due to having a leg amputated when she was a child. She sleeps on the couch in her three-bedroom private rental so her grandchildren can have beds. 
We've got three boys in one room, one on a blow-up air bed mattress, a grandson, uh, two girls in one room, uh, me on the couch, my daughter and my other grandson is in the main bedroom. Ms Nana was taken off the public housing waitlist after she rejected multiple properties that she says were unsuitable for the children. She says she found needles and sachets in the front yard of one of the houses and the other one was too far from public transit. I was concerned about because the grandkids that came from DCP uh, came with trauma. The Department of Communities says Miss Nanup has recently been put back on the waiting list. It says it provides additional supports for families with children and that eviction is a last resort. Miss Nanup says her case shows more support is needed to give children with traumatic backgrounds a chance to thrive. These ones that are just wanting, you know, the, the support, the safety net, and everything else. And I wouldn't have got my grandkids out of DCP if I thought, OK, then, I can't do this. I, I, I can do it. We can do it as a family. Alicia Bridges reporting there. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. And you are with me, Alex Hyman. It's great to have your company. The collapse of soft plastics recycling giant Red Cycle has left many wondering what to do with their old plastic bags. Last week, Victoria's Environment Protection Authority found 3,000 tonnes of soft plastics in, a Mel in Mel Melbourne warehouses as it continued to investigate the halted recycling scheme that saw people returning plastic bags and soft plastic to participating supermarkets. But in regional Victoria, a council and business are forging ahead with alternative initiatives to help put soft plastics to good use. From Romsey, Victoria, reporter Lexi Junowick has the story. It's afternoon tea time at the Romsey Neighbourhood House in the Massenden Ranges. That's the sound of longtime local Valerie Stannard opening a pack of biscuits to enjoy with her cup of tea. Bicky's on a plate, Val pops the plastic wrapping inside an orange bag. From there, the brightly coloured bag is placed in the regular recycling bin that's collected from the curb every fortnight. It's easy. For the next 12 months, soft plastics from Romsey locals and businesses will be taken to Dandenong in Melbourne. Once that goes through the process, as it gets separated, the material is go goes through a pyrolysis process that's then converted back into more plastic materials, part of our circular economy. Shane Walden from Massenham Rangers Shire says if successful, the trial could be expanded to more towns in the Shire and beyond. Ultimately, it's about whether or not there is a scalability in that solution. And if that's the case, then this is a great opportunity. Despite the recent collapse of Red Cycle, regional councils like the Massenham Rangers Shire are pushing ahead with trials like this one, which is in partnership with the Australian Food and Grocery Council. It's potentially filling the void left by the suspension of the popular soft plastics collection scheme in major supermarkets. The thing that we like about this trial, and we hope that it succeeds, is that it's a lot more convenient for people to do this recycling in their home and only have to take the material to their curbside and not all the way to a supermarket. And that's just going to help people do even more recycling. For environmentally conscious residents like Valerie Stannard, Romsey's bag and bin trial has been a long time coming. It's a process that's needed to be done. The environment needs protection. And if we don't recycle properly, we're not going to have it. About 100 kilometres away in Ballarat, manufacturer Replas is continuing to recycle soft plastics into items including benches and road signs. Redcycle was one of its suppliers, but they're confident it can be replaced. Replas can get hold of 
uh, recycled material from multiple sources. Replast manager Paul Hone says all levels of government need to do more to incentivise recycling by changing regulations to encourage the collection and recycling of soft plastics. If were governments, uh, both state and federal, were to change some of the regulatory framework um, so that it is more advantageous for councils, for hospitals, for state governments, for federal governments to encourage people to take a recycled plastic product, there would be a significant increase in the use of those materials. Ballarat reporter Lexi Junowick with that story. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. And a reminder, you can always email the program. We love to hear what's happening in your part of the world. Australiawide.radio at abc.net.au. To the Queensland beaches now where lifesavers are bracing for a busy summer with the return of international travellers. But in some small communities, surf lifesaving clubs are struggling to keep the flags on the beach due to a lack of members. From Rainbow Beach, reporter Meg Bolton has this story. Three hours' drive north of Brisbane, Rainbow Beach was once a well-kept secret. But as local lifesaver Kim McCarthy says, the town's now booming. What we have noticed uh, since COVID started was that certain people who used to travel out of Brisbane and go south of the border for holidays and weekends were forced to stay in Queensland and they found Rainbow Beach and they've been coming back ever since. But in a town of 4,000 people, there are times when the local lifesaving club struggles to keep the flags up due to a shortage in members. A very simple task, but it's a very important task and ultimately some lives are saved. How often do you have to make rescues? Look, I say that uh, if you have to do a dramatic rescue, you may well not have been paying attention the preceding 10 minutes. So in our case here today, for example, um, we're, we're giving quite a lot of people a hand, but we're seeing them in trouble before sometimes they even know they're in trouble. Rainbow Beach Police are preparing for the town's population to quadruple over the Christmas period as holidaymakers flock to the Kalula Coast. But despite its popularity, Mr McCarthy says finding members is becoming increasingly harder. What we could really do with is some more members, maybe those 20-year-olds who are established in work in the immediate vicinity in Rainbow Beach or in Gympie, who are looking for something in their life and they could join this club and be part of this club. It's a terrific club and, like me, would get far more out of it than they put in. Lifesavers from as far away as the Gold Coast are travelling for hours to patrol Rainbow Beach. Part of Brisbane Life Saving Service, so we assist a lot of different beaches between all of southern Queensland, southeast Queensland, um, and helping teams that don't necessarily have enough patrolling members of their own. So we come and assist, and sometimes do full patrols, sometimes just kind of help out folks. Kaylee Pezak says Rainbow Beach is a favourite location of the travelling lifesavers. Brisbane Lifesavers love coming up to the beach, coming up to Rainbow, and spending the weekends away bit of a team bonding experience, I think, for us. So it's really different than what we normally see on the Gold Coast and somewhere on Sunshine Coast beaches. It's interesting, you've got, you know, cars to your south, you've got horses to the north, um, you've got paragliding, hang gliding, whatever it is, all up above us. So it's really cool, lots of different experiences. And then when you get out on the water, you can look at the coloured sands above. Surf Life Saving Queensland says more volunteers are needed to patrol beaches this summer, particularly in regional and remote areas. I 
anyone can volunteer. It doesn't matter about your ability. We can do things as small as you know, observers or um, just being able to be in contact on the radio or helping with first aid incidents. But of course, if you can do the swimming act. A uh, bit of running and doing the other rescues is awesome. Some of the most beautiful beaches, you wouldn't necessarily even guess it, but you know, some of their patrolling members, they might only have a group with maybe only two members, or because they've got such low members, they need the same people to patrol two, three times a month because they're just, which obviously takes away from their life balance too. So, definitely being able to, the more people that we do have, kind of gives everybody a bit more freedom to kind of hop on when they're available. But also, I think it's really good to have the extra numbers on the beach so that if something does happen and something does go wrong, you've got those extra hands that there's always still something touching the water. Rainbow Beach Surf Lifesaver Sophie Schuth began as a nipper before going on to become a patrolling member of the club. She says becoming a lifesaver has helped shape her life. I think getting involved in lifesaving and nippers and all that is one of the best things that I've ever done. It's just opened up so many opportunities and you know, gave me so many things that I didn't know that I liked and wanted to do, so it's a really great thing to get involved in. Rainbow Beach surf lifesaver Sophie Schuth finishing that report from Meg Bolton in Queensland. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. The Regent Honeyeater could once be found across the east coast of Australia, but now less than 300 remain in the wild. Kapiti Valley, 200 kilometres northwest of Sydney, is one of three breeding areas in the country. Here, conservationists are trialling a new program which they hope will save the species by helping citizen scientists learn to identify the songbird's call. From New South Wales Central West, reporter Hamish Cole has this story. The calls of the Regent Honeyeater once echoed throughout Capity Valley, but now the species is on the brink of extinction. According to local land services senior officer Vivian Howard, there are a number of reasons for their decline. Pre-European settlement Regent Honeyeaters were quite common and occurred in very large flocks, but the, the habitat that they like the most is kind of fertile valley floors next to riparian areas where you get really large trees that produce a lot of nectar and a lot of blossom and of course those areas are the are the areas that that we also um, like to use for agriculture and farming and things so um, traditionally things like habitat fragmentation and habitat loss um, kind of linked with the fact that it's um, habitat and feed trees um, are quite unique has led to um, a bit of a decline in, in the population. Now in an effort to understand more about the species, conservationists are calling for community support. At rest stops in Capity, the bird's mating call is being played on speakers to help citizen scientists identify the bird while walking through the region. It's really important that um, scientists and conservationists know where they are. Um, 300's not very many, so it's, it's actually crucial that people can find where they are and that, that helps um, with things like nest protection. So scientists can kind of travel around and protect their nests while they're nesting. So learning how to identify Regent Honeyeaters is really important and then knowing where to report those sightings. Unfortunately with the Regent Honeyeater the number of, of birds in the wild has continued to decline but the, the population study that was done said that if we can protect nests and increase the number of juvenile birds that 
are being born in the wild in conjunction with releasing birds from the zoo um, and doing you know habitat enhancement projects like tree planting um, then we should be able to to secure them in the wild. According to Mick Roderick from BirdLife Australia it could provide crucial information to save the honey eater. With so few birds over such a huge area uh, we really really need um, our citizen scientists, uh, we need the community to be on the lookout for the Regent Honeyeater and that facility you mentioned at the village of Capity with, with, with the call, it's great that, that that's there because um, quite often you, you won't see a Regent Honeyeater before you hear it. So the learning the call, learning what a Regent Honeyeater sounds like is really important because that can actually be, be the way that you, you find the bird. Their population has gotten so small, they're starting to forget their voice. There's only actually 300 left in the wild. Um, the populations are so small um, that they're losing some of their um, their core vocalisations. So they're actually losing the, the capacity to interact properly and, and that's impacting um, pairing and breeding. I guess um, similar to, to humans, the capacity for us to communicate together is really, really important. Um, and it's the same with the region honeyeater. So if birds can't communicate with each other, they, then they can't pair up and they can't breed. This has led scientists to take an unusual method to save the honey eaters' soundtrack. Uh, we've just been finding in recent years that uh, often if we encounter a, a lone male bird that, that's on his own, he's, he's actually making calls that are of other honey eaters, um, potentially um, you know, larger honey eaters like uh, little wattle birds, uh, noisy fry birds, things like that. So the theory is that these lone males are <coughs> wandering off um, you know, post-breeding and not actually finding other regent honey eaters because there's so few birds left. And these young males are actually learning the calls of, of other birds. So it's, it's symptomatic of the, the critically low um, population of regent honey eaters. And we do a captive release of birds. So we actually are releasing zoobred uh, birds into the wild every so often. Uh, and there are efforts to actually teach uh, some of the birds in the zoos, um, the, the inverted commas proper regent honey eater call. So when these young birds, um, when these birds are released into the wild, that they're, they're, they're making the right sounds that will, um, in theory, attract wild females and, yeah, and again, just have great outcomes for, 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 for breeding output. It's a wonderful sound. Mick Roderick from BirdLife Australia ending that story from New South Wales reporter Hamish Cole. You're listening to Australia Wide. I didn't know Melbourne much. I knew where the race courses were. I'm making signs for the sleepy lizards. Basically less eggs this year than what we would have expected. The houses that are near the edge of the bush, they might encounter a snake up to four times a year, a death adder. Um, just, yeah, see how it goes. On ABC Radio... And the last story of the program takes us to a remote community in central Queensland where they are celebrating a huge achievement for nine of their teacher aides. The group of experienced staff at Warrabinda State School gained their Certificate 3 in education, education support this month. Now, these certificate recipients hope they can be role models for the kids in their care. From central Queensland, reporter Erin Semler has this story. 
as I was walking up to the stage, the kids were looking at me and singing out, yeah, Nan Marilyn, yeah, Auntie Marilyn. <laughs> and I just wanted to start crying. I, uh, I actually did. I stood behind everybody else, behind my face. Teacher aide Marilyn Smith has nurtured primary school students in the remote Indigenous community of Warabinda in central Queensland for seven years. Auntie Marilyn is one of nine experienced First Nations staff to receive their Certificate 3 in education support, thanks to the Department of Education and TAFE Queensland. I feel real proud about it. I've been chasing after it for three years. And asking everybody here, it just all fell on deaf ears until Rachel comes along and I was just in her ear all the time. And she made it happen and so grateful. That shout out from Auntie Marilyn is for Rachel Backman, the school's principal. This is the highest educational attainment Auntie Marilyn has reached so far, despite her lengthy experience. It was because of the kids that I got to where I am. I just love them. The teacher aide's achievement is significant for the small town of Warabinda, where 11.9% of people aged 15 and over have obtained a certificate level 3, according to the 2021 census. This compares to the Queensland average of 15.3%. Terence Barnum, known as Ham, grew up in Warabinda. I really wanted to be a teacher, just to be a good role model for this community. Ham has three children of his own. They keep me going every day. They're my heart and soul. My pride and joy. Yep. He's been a teacher aide at the school for 11 years. And I've got a lot of love and respect for every, all these kids in this community. The 40-year-old has been chasing his certificate for a while too. But it's just sometimes that I just... Didn't want to do it, but then I, you know, realised I had to, I got to do it to get these certificates if I wanted to be a teacher. He was overwhelmed with pride during the community celebration. Honestly, I felt emotional, especially when you got your, your little ones with you and they're saying, hey, Dad, you got a, a certificate, you know, a reward. With his next goal of studying a bachelor's degree in sight, Ham encourages more First Nations people to take up teaching. That's what we need. We need like us and any other people to get their certificate so we can teach our kids, you know, our people. Like, just because we all live in this community and we know how our kids work, how they go in class, you know, what we expect, what they expect. And we've got a good um, relationship with their families. Like, most of, it, most of us are connected to family here. Through history, you know. Fellow homegrown teacher aide Darren Hill, known as Pop, says watching the children grow and achieve their goals is rewarding. I find it very um, satisfying where where I could help these young ones and um, maybe set them on the right career path and the straight and narrow. You know, there's there's more to life than alcohol and drugs. Pop says gaining his certificate meant a great deal and it was an honour to receive it in front of the students. Hopefully it'll be a, um, will be a role model for them, for them to see, you know, you can put in hard work and, and get rewarded for, for that. He has big plans for the future. I'm thinking about doing my degree now, so, yeah. So onwards and upwards for me, I reckon. Warabinda State School has about 200 students split over 10 classrooms with a teacher aide in each, but outgoing principal Rachel Backman says more staff are needed.
She hopes initiatives like this will encourage more Indigenous staff to fill permanent teacher and leadership positions. So many of them are so capable, so inspiring and care so much that they'll make amazing teachers. They'll make, hopefully one of them could be a principal one day of this school because that's what our school needs, is they need needs to be led by our First Nations staff. For Auntie Marilyn, building respectful relationships with the children is the most fulfilling job. I want to keep doing teacher aiding and that's all there is. I don't want to do anything else because I want to make an impact on, in children's lives. It's not only education, you've got to teach them life skills also the love and all that stuff. That was Auntie Marilyn from Warrabinda State School, ending that report by Erin Semler. And that's Australia Wide for this Wednesday. Remember, you can podcast the show, listen back to the program through the ABC Listen app or by visiting the Australia Wide website. Just search for ABC Australia Wide. And you can also find more on all of tonight's stories on the ABC News website, abc.net.au forward slash news. I'm Alex Hyman. I'll be back again with you tomorrow. Have a wonderful evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.